Last week, if you were with us, we were looking at uh, some of the main names in the early Anabaptist movement. We talked a good bit about how that term is not overly descriptive and not overly useful to us, but why it was used. And we got toward the end, and uh, we saw the name Melchior Hoffman, and we started talking a little bit about the uh, uh, level of eschatological uh, focus that began to develop after the peasants' revolt in those five years after 1525. Um, There was, uh, was not unusual thing. There have been many, many times in history where there was a uh, rush of expectancy about the second coming. And uh, so you have that uh, taking place. Uh, You have the identification of Strasbourg as uh, a location of where the uh, kingdom is going to be centered and, and so on and so forth. And we mentioned that Melchior Hoffman then made as a convert uh, a man by the name of uh, Jan Mathis. Um, He's going to end up having lots of names before he's done. Um, But uh, I I mentioned to you that he, uh, by all descriptions, uh, looked like he walked off the cover of a Led Zeppelin album. Uh, Long, black, flowing robes. Long pointed beard, um, again a little bit like um, uh, certain uh, figures in the Lord of the Rings um, before changing colors, um, uh, and uh, so uh, tall, much taller than most people, uh, dark, and and basically one of those types of people who would. You know, had a cell phone to God, um, and literally would would be talking with someone, and then just say, "Hold on a second. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Okay. The answer to that question is this: God says, and so you you clearly have uh, a a radical individual here. Uh, does not believe in anything even remotely like sola scriptura. Um, and given a lot of what he said, I, I don't think could be identified as functionally Trinitarian. Um, not that he railed against the Trinity, just doesn't seem to have understood it. Um, and what's interesting, what we will see with Mathis and then his disciple, Jan of Leiden, the two Jans, these are the two, the two Jans and the two uh, Bernhards, uh, Rothman and, and Nipperdaling. Um, those are four of the most important names of what happens in Munster uh, between 1533 and 1535. Um, but what's interesting uh, is... Uh, when you when you look carefully at what happens during this time period, especially once the city is besieged, the city is going to be besieged for a lengthy period of time, uh, for over a year, um, there was uh, a lot of singing and, and church services and a lot of singing of Luther's new hymn, A Mighty Fortress. They like, they love that because Munster was a fortress city and they were surrounded by walls and, 
And so a mighty fortress, and this is going to be the new Jerusalem. This is Zion. And uh, But what was really interesting, even though there would be a great deal of Scripture reading, there was a massive de-emphasis of the New Testament. There was a, a tremendous uh, increase in emphasis upon uh, the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, there, is, there is no uh, balance or anything, even at the beginning. And what you're going to see is when you don't have the foundation at the beginning, once pressure is applied, um, any building that you attempt to build without a foundation is going to collapse. And what happens to it on the way down uh, can be rather uh, fascinating and that is definitely what we have. Uh, what we have here. So what happens uh, is um, uh, we know that in 1532 Melchior Hoffman um, declares Christ will return to Strasbourg in 1533, um, and right at the end of this time period. Uh, Munster is undergoing Reformation as well. And so in February of 1533, now Munster is a is pretty much run by guilds. There is a what's called a prince bishop, uh, Bishop Franz von Waldeck. Um, he is a technically a Roman Catholic bishop, but he's married. And he's very um, sympathetic toward uh, Lutheranism. Um, so he's, you know, he's not like, it's not like he's sold out to, you know, being the best servant of the Pope you could ever be. Um, but he is allegedly in control of the city, though the city has primarily, it's a very wealthy city, and it has primarily been run by the guilds. Uh, this was a major area of commerce. Uh, the people lived wonderful lives. They had nice homes. It was a safe city. Um, uh, the walls were thick, as you, well, as you can imagine. If it stands up to a siege for over a year, um, even when uh, the bishop who besieges it eventually uh, is loaned huge, massive cannon, one called the devil and the other called the mother of the devil. Mm. Uh, to to fire massive shells at these walls. They never were able to breach the walls. Uh, the people inside were able to repair them as fast as they could blow holes in them. So uh, it was a safe place. It was a beautiful place. Beautiful churches. It was just sort of a garden spot. A river running right through the city and moat outside. The whole nine yards it was, you know, what you would think of, a, of just a really nice medieval city. Um, and so uh, the, the city officially, by election, because you know, the guilds run it, and so there's a town council, and, and they really have the power. I mean, they have to you know, sort of deal with the, with the bishop on one level or another, and there's a taxation system and stuff like that. But you know, it, it's, it's primarily run by, by the people. It's not just, you know, it's not like the bishop has complete and total uh, control over everything. And so in, uh, in February of 1533, Munster officially becomes a Lutheran uh, city. And uh, Bishop uh, von Waldeck is, is not opposed to this 
in the sense of trying to crack the whip or anything like that. He's sort of like, he's sort of testing the winds and, and he is sympathetic toward Lutheranism. So he's sort of a in the middle type guy who's primarily there politically. It's not a big religious thing, though you can't avoid religion at this particular point uh, in time. And so uh, in the summer of 1533, uh, Bernard Rothman is convinced by Melchior Hoffman to leave Lutheranism and to uh, become friendly toward Anabaptist uh, concepts and Anabaptist uh, movements. Uh, so he embraces the belief that infant baptism is invalid, that adults must be rebaptized. And Rothman is an excellent writer. Uh, he's a very good communicator. At this time, the language of most of the people in northern Germany into the Netherlands, places like that, the languages were close enough, low German, and, and you could communicate. Uh, you might go, eh, once in a while, what? Um, but uh, you could communicate. And so um, his huge advantage and something that you know, we need to take into consideration in analyzing these things and making application to today um, is, of course, the printing press now exists, and he's got one. Uh, so he has a press. Not everybody did, obviously. Uh, these days, thanks to the Internet, everybody's got a printing press. Um, back then, that obviously wasn't the case. And if you had one, um, then and enough, and most people in this area in, in Munster were, had some money. They had some, uh, they had some resources. Uh, so he could buy paper and he could uh, do what he needed to do to produce Things he begins writing uh, tracts and booklets that are first focused on the Catholic Church, uh, infant baptism, the basic stuff you'd expect, but over time swing farther and farther into an Anabaptist uh, perspective. And he has a friend, a, wealth, a wealthy wool merchant by the name of Bernard Nipperdalling. Uh, he was probably about 14 before he could finally figure out how to spell his last name. But um, And uh, so uh, Nipperdalling likewise utilizes his resources uh, to help distribute Rothman's material, uh, primarily in northern Germany. As I said, southern Germany had primarily been lost to the Reformation after the, um, after the Peasants' Revolt. Um, there was a, a, a detestation of Luther uh, for they, they, they viewed like he had betrayed them when he had told the princes to put down the rebellion. And uh, so the material is primarily staying in the north and is finding a tremendously um, wide audience of people that are willing to read and to uh, and to listen, and uh, so Rothman's material begins to uh, convince many people in Munster to move beyond Lutheranism uh, and instead embrace the Anabaptist theology of Melchior Hoffman. 
so Bernard Rothman and his allies take over political office in Munster because, again, this was these offices were primarily done via election, and Munster was primarily under the control of guilds, and but it was very what we would call democratic or representational, uh, that type of thing. And uh, so uh, Bernard Rothman, Bernard Nipperdaling, uh, Bernard Nipperdaling becomes the mayor of Munster after deposing the Lutheran magistrates who until then had seen him as an ally. And so you've now got three, you've got the Catholics that are still there, you've got the Lutherans that are still there, and now this growing group of Anabaptists uh, that are there. Um, and so what happens, that what, what really sets everything off is one of Hoffman's disciples, Jan Mathis, uh, again, that really funky-looking dude, um, in January of 1534, he identifies Munster as the new Jerusalem. And a number of his disciples then go to Munster, uh, as does uh, he, and uh, begin doing public baptisms of adults. Um, and on one day, 1,000 adults were, were rebaptized there in the city of uh, Munster. Now, Munster had about, it's hard to say, but around 10,000 uh, normal residents uh, within the city walls, approximately, that number's going to change a lot during this time period, and who it is is going to change a lot during this time period, as you're going to see. In fact, just over the next 60 days, there's going to be a huge difference. Rothman begins uh, inviting people through his writings to come to Munster, uh, where they are going to have freedom and, and, and so on and so forth. And so the uh, population begins to change rather radically with this sudden influx of, uh, of Anabaptists. And of course, you had had the prophecy about 1533 in Strasbourg, and oh, oh, we missed it by a year. It's Munster. Okay, let's, let's head that direction type of a, of a situation. People who are willing to believe one prophecy are probably willing to believe a second one, even though the first one failed. And um, so you have this uh, large movement, large-scale immigration into uh, into Munster, which of course is extremely troubling to the bishop uh, and to others watching this uh, uh, taking uh, taking place. But they're not really a thousand percent uh, certain exactly what to do. Um, so on February tenth, fifteen thirty four, Bernard Nipperdaling, mayor of Munster, joined the Anabaptist movement to overthrow the town council and the bishop. Uh, Anabaptist prophets Jan Mathis, and then Jan was accompanied by one of his own disciples, a young man at this time age 24, by the name of Jan of Leiden or Jan Bockelson. There are a couple different names that are used for him at this particular point in time. And the only way I could probably describe for you Jan of Leiden uh, the young man, uh, he doesn't look anything like Jan Mathis. Uh, as far as we can tell from the historical records, probably would have been like a 
Brad Pitt at 24, okay? Uh, musically talented, an actor, um, just a, a master of manipulating people uh, with awesome good looks. And um, he is second fiddle for now. There's all sorts of speculation as to whether he organizes becoming first fiddle later on or just took advantage of what was happening or whatever it might be. We'll see here in a moment. But uh, as, you, as you put these guys in your mind, Jan Mathis needs to be the six foot five. Um, who was the who was the bad guy in uh, in in the Lord of the Rings? Saruman. Yeah, Saruman. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, dark, yeah. pointy hat carrying a. I, I mean, literally. I mean, that's how he's described. I mean, uh, there's just there's no other way to. If you want something that a lot of people would have seen, the connected. That, that's what he looks like. If any of you saw that really funny meme on Facebook last week, uh, when my Anglican friends uh, hang out with my Baptist friends, yeah. it was Saruman and Gandalf. Right. Uh, and they look like they're eight feet tall, walking with the Peter, was it Peter, Peter Jackson, the producer, who's in shorts, looking very frumpy, looks like he's five foot two, and he's the Baptist. So, uh, so the other two the guys were the Anglicans, and it's some of my Anglican friends hang out with my Baptist friends. And uh, that's sort of a, a good description, I think. Um, so that's how you guys see Jan, Jan Mathis. Uh, but now you've got this uh, Jan of Leiden, who's at his side, and he's, he's just... He's very different um, than, than Jan Mathis is. And uh, these guys come into, come into Munster and uh, begin uh, preaching the necessity of having a pure congregation, the congregation of Christ, uh, the community of Christ. That's what they call themselves. Uh, and... You know, the rest of the townspeople are sort of like, it sort of sounds like they don't want us around. Uh, and the more and more of them that show up, but, but no one knew what to do about it. Um, and so there is a brief um, couple weeks of transition taking place where Mathis is getting his feet under him. And then I believe it was around February 27th, 1534, uh, Mathis would have these, I cannot help but just simply point out that the description, the physical description provided by people who saw it of when Jan Mathis would hear from God has stunning parallels to the descriptions of what would happen when Muhammad received revelations that became part of the Quran. Um, there, you know, there could be almost a fit that takes place, or a lot, lack, loss of consciousness, or, or, or a, a stupor and, and mumbling and yes, Lord, you know, type thing. Um, but uh, he begins preaching loudly in the in the square of the city that the the congregation of Christ must be pure, and those who are unbelievers must be delivered over to Satan, and they must be killed. And he, he's, he's basically saying we need to wipe out not just the Catholics, but the Lutherans too. 
well, whether it was Jan of Leiden or just who of his allies or come to him and say, you know, um, if we do this, um, it's going to unite every mayor and every prince for 50 miles around. Uh, and they are going to come and crush us and we will not be ready for them. Uh, this is, this is radical. You've got to rethink this. And so, so Jan modifies his, uh, his perspective a bit. Now, already uh, they are cramming everything they can cram into storehouses in Munster because they are already assuming that the prince bishop will besiege the city because they have rejected his authority. Um, and so they are storing up everything that they can store up. And they've got a few weeks to do this. And like I said, it's a rich city. They're buying everything they can get their hands on. It's one of the reasons the siege lasted as long as it did. Um, and so on February 27th, 1534... Uh, a bitter, cold day. In the morning, uh, Mathis and the Anabaptists uh, drive all the Catholics and all the Protestants, uh, I'm sorry, all the Lutherans, um, out of the city. They are only allowed to take what is on them. Now, there had been an earlier deportation, actually, it hadn't been as violent, and it wasn't at such a horrible time, uh, you were allowed to, like, take a cart, what you could carry. Uh, but you weren't allowed to take food or anything like that. Now, this deportation, this forceful one on February 27th, uh, is when there is uh, snow and sleet. It is freezing cold, um, and it doesn't matter who you are, and you're not allowed to take anything, even a jacket. You're just driven out of the city and everything you own becomes a part of the city's common treasure. Um, so, you know, pregnant women are giving birth in the streets. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a horrific situation. And they are driven out of the city on February 27th. And as a result, uh, when the storm clears and the fog clears, uh, the people of Munster look out and they see the bishop's troops uh, in line forming a cordon around the, around the city, and the siege has, uh, has begun. Now, uh, that siege, while it's going to last until the next summer, um, is, shall we say, porous. Um, the, the forest comes close to the city, and there are a lot of underground passages and all sorts of stuff like that. And so... While the city is besieged and you can't have, you know, like wagons of food or something coming in, uh, Rothman's going to continue getting his pamphlets out. Uh, people are going to go in and out. Um, it, it's, it's not a, it's, it's a porous situation until early the next year when the bishop starts building a, literally a solid wall all around Munster, which is already three miles round to begin with. And so it's a big wall. But he realized, I need to, this is like a cancer. I need to, need to completely seal it off. Um, so the siege begins then uh, early March, late February of uh, 15, 
34. Now, what begins to happen is a tremendous study over the next literally number of weeks uh, into the fall is a is a amazing study in human nature. Um, Melchior Hoffman was a pacifist. There was no violent aspect of his theology, and yet over the next number of weeks, um, it is going to become commonplace in the city of Munster. They estimate there were about 9,000 in the city when it was besieged. So between the Anabaptists coming in and then the Catholics and the others being driven out, and those who, by the way, didn't want to leave, just had to be baptized. Um, what's interesting is if you were in the last groups that were baptized at one point, just to show you the, the mental warfare that Mathis and Leiden somehow knew to use, um, at one point, uh, all those people who had, were the last, in the last group to be baptized, Mathis... Uh, questioned their faithfulness. And so he had them all gathered and stuck inside a church for a number of hours. And, well, remind me to tell you about it because I'm, I'm going out of context. I'm sorry. They, what's going to happen over the next six months is you're going to have such violence. Beheadings are going to become a normal thing. Uh... Uh, Bernard Nipperdaling uh, becomes uh, the, the bearer of the sword. Once Jan, Jan of Leiden is going to become king, um, and there's going to be executions, and, and at one point, um, polygamy is going to be introduced, forced polygamy, amongst Anabaptists, who are very prudish people. Um, and at, at one point, Jan's going to have 16 wives, and one of them's going to turn against him. And so he's going to take her in the city square, and he's going to behead her in front of everybody, and then he and the rest of his wives are going to dance around the headless body. I mean, this happens in a matter of months. And you're left going, what? How? How? What? But no way. This is, you, this, is, this is stuff of a Hollywood movie, but it didn't happen in history. Yeah, it, it happened in history. And it happened Fast. And it, leave, it just it left all of Europe going, wow. And when these stories get out, and of course, some of the stories become exaggerated over time as well. Um, this is why uh, Anabaptists were feared uh, forever. Um, to this day, as I, as I mentioned, the, those three cages are hanging in Munster, and there's, there's a reason uh, for that. So... What happens is early on in, in March, Mathis, Jan Mathis, who is now the prophet, he speaks for God. Um, he does not receive revelations that he, he doesn't even get involved in arguing things like canon or scriptural sufficiency or something like that. Uh, he's a prophet. He speaks for God. Um, the end of the world is coming. And uh, this is Zion, and this is the place to be. 
And so uh, you and I would have all sorts of theological questions about this, but uh, what happens is once the siege starts, then there's immediate organization of everyone in the city into a paramilitary style life. You have to, there's all sorts of secret passages in and out, and there's gates and stuff like that, and you have, they have to be guarded day and night. And, and uh, in fact, it's going to become a two-way street over the next number of months. Um, you would think the Anabaptists would stay behind the walls and are nice and safe. No. They become nighttime terrorists. And they will sneak out at night, and they will head into uh, the encampment of one of the of some of the uh, soldiers of the of the bishop prince and slit all their throats and burn their burn their gunpowder and destroy their cannons and and I mean they are the the bishop prince is is amazed at the uh, tactics. They can't break out. They can't. There's too many. But man, they certainly make life interesting uh, in the darkness. And of course, they're all the locals. Most of the people the bishops bring in are either local farmers to do work or, or mercenaries. They don't know the area. These people know the area like the back of their hands. And so they, they can disappear into the darkness and you have no idea how they got there, where they went, or anything else. Um, and so there's a there's warfare going on. The one thing that Munster was short on was sulfur. And you need to have sulfur for gunpowder. And so they only had so much. And so they, they really tried to not use weapons. They had cannon. They had cannon up on the ramparts in really nice reinforced locations. And that kept the bishop's forces. They had to stay far enough out to stay out of range of the cannon that were in Munster. And so you've got this dead zone, basically, around Munster. It's a no man's land. Uh, and then outside of that, the bishop's forces set up. But that's pretty, it's a fairly large area uh, that you're trying to do. And of course, the prince bishop has to pay these soldiers. And he's getting support from both Catholics and Protestants to do so. Because both Catholics and Protestants see this is not what we want happening in our place. And so, yes, uh, Von Waldeck, we will loan you this amount of money or we'll give you this amount of money, but it's still extremely expensive. And, of course, the last thing he wants to do is blow up his own city. Uh, I mean, every shell he lobs into that city is damaged and he's going to have to repair. So he's in a tough spot. He really doesn't know exactly what to do here. Well, once you're in a besieged city, oof, it changes the way people think. And so what happens is early on, there is a man, a blacksmith. Now, you think of, you think of blacksmiths in, in movies about this time. They, they do not, well, let's just put it this way. I was going to say do not look like anyone. I'm not going to pick anybody because you'd think I was picking on you. What they look like is George. Okay? <laughs> right? I mean, when you think of a blacksmith in this time period, you think of George. Okay? 
pick it up and anvil, you know, that type of thing. Anvil on the belt, put it down, all right, you know, that type of thing. They're big men, you know. And so there is a blacksmith that everybody knew in Munster, he'd been there forever, by the name of Herbert Rusher. Herbert Rusher. And one night, Herbert Rusher is on guard duty, and he was in a lousy spot. It was a cold spot. They didn't really have a whole lot to keep them warm. The soldiers are right over there, and they've got fire, and they got, you know, they're, they're doing real nice. And so not everybody's happy over on the Herbert Rusher side. And Herbert Rusher thinks that Jan Mathis is a jerk. Uh, he's, he's a weirdo, and, and he's, he's, you know, what, what is going on here? How have we allowed this to happen type stuff? But he thinks everybody around him is his friend, and so he's safe. But Mathis has already begun to encourage a, an atmosphere of great fear. He's encouraged children to report on their parents. Eventually, laws will be passed. For example, you could never lock the door of your house. Your door always had to be open. Uh, anybody could come in and check on what you were doing at any time. And both Jans were your classic cult-leading conspiracy theorist wackadoodles um, and are thinking that everyone's always out to get them. And so um, word is reported to Jan Mathis uh, about what Herbert Rusher has said. And so there's different stories as to where he was arrested and how he was arrested and stuff like that. But Herbert Rusher is brought before Jan Mathis and the large portion of the town populace in the city square, which is how things were done back then. And he is uh, bound with his uh, with a heavy rope, and his hands are behind his back. And uh, so Jan Mathis begins to uh, begins to preach about how God has told him that there are unbelievers amongst what's supposed to be the pure congregation of Christ. And that these unbelievers must be cut off from the land of the living. So people start looking at each other. They all know Herbert Rusher. He's probably made things for a bunch of them. And so a couple of these guys who are Anabaptist leaders, they are on board. Come up to Jan Mathis and they're like, we have, we have rules. We have laws. We, we don't just execute people in the city square for the fun of it, um, that there's, there has to be a trial, and there has to be, and Mathis has them thrown in prison. And then the stories differ, but it seems like the most probable is that when it looks like Mathis might waver in himself executing Russia, Jan of Leiden steps forward, grabs a, uh, one of these pikes, these long spear-type things that were used in warfare, and comes up behind Rusher and stabs him in the back, puts him on the ground. Right in front of everybody. Well, 
Russia, poor guy, is a strong guy, and it doesn't kill him. He's just laying there on the ground screaming and moaning, which doesn't look good. And so Leiden goes over to one of the guards, takes his pistol, you know, they were the cap pistol, the ball, and walks up to him and shoots him in the head at point-blank range. Those weren't the most effective pistols in those days. Um, still doesn't kill him. Um, so people, yes, like George. And so um, people come out of the crowd, they pick him up, they take him to his home, uh, and he dies eight days later. Eight days later. George would have lasted ten. Well, there you go. Uh, we have... We are adding our own apocryphal uh, <laughs> stories to the uh, to the to the uh, to the events of Munster. So the people are stunned. This is the context in which Jan Matha says, "The Lord has revealed to me that there are some of you who are not true believers. Those of you who are in that last group that were baptized in the last deportation, you know, before we kicked all the Catholics and Lutherans out, you were baptized then. Gather them all up." And put him in the church. Well, you just saw one of the strongest men in the in the whole city stabbed in the back and shot in the head, um, and you're left in there for hours. By the time Jan Mathis walks in, they're all just on their knees, weeping and crying for mercy. And what Jan Mathis does is he kneels down next to them. And he goes into his trance thing and he says, Oh, I thank you, Father, that you've allowed me to be merciful to these, your people. Oh, and they are so thankful. That is manipulation like you can't believe. I mean, that's how you make fanatical disciples. You get them in fear of their life, then you show them mercy. Except you're the one that was threatening them in the first place. I don't know where these guys learned this stuff, but wow, were they good at it. So this is very quickly the attitude and the mindset of what's going on in Munster. If it, you know, and, and of course, people start accusing other people and, and uh, all the rest of this stuff. And so there's a huge amount of fear. But there's also a whole lot of religiosity going on. There would be lengthy readings from primarily the Old Testament. And there was a singing of Anabaptist hymns. And like I said, uh, the soldiers outside of Munster could hear wafting over the walls of the singing of a mighty fortress is our God. It was one of the favorites of the, uh, of the Anabaptists in, uh, in Munster. I think we have just enough time to tell you, to get you to sort of the transitionary point. Around Easter of 1534, so April, so it's only been a little over, you know, six weeks maybe, um, there is a wedding taking place. And it's a big feast. This is a rich city. Their storehouses were still full. It had only been a few weeks. And so there is a wedding feast going on, and Jan Mathis is there with the people. And all of a sudden, you know, he's been sitting there sort of contemplating, and all of a sudden, uh, and head on the, on, the, on the table, out like a light. 
And everybody's like, what, 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 what do we do? Is, is there a revelation coming? You know, so everybody's like, and so when he comes to, he's, like, he's going, yes, Father, as you will. Yes, Father, as you will. He stands up and he kisses everybody and leaves. And everybody's like, what just happened? So what he does is he has a personal guard. He chooses, stories differ, between 12 and 30 of his personal guard. I, I think 12 has a better possibility. It sounds good and apocalyptic. Chooses about 12 men to go with him. And on Easter Sunday, 1534, Jan Mathis straps on his sword, spear, armor, and with 12 men, rides out the main city gate of Munster. He is going to go defeat, as the man of God, all the armies of the bishop, prince, prince bishop, which at this time is around 8,000 men. Okay? And so everybody in the city rushes to the walls because you've got this dead zone because of their cannon where there's, you, you can watch. And out they ride, and as they watch the bishop's forces out on the far hill, uh, before long, here comes a column of about 500 cavalry. Uh, they're elite forces against 13 people. And they hit, clash, 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 it's over fast. And they tear Jan Mathis to pieces. They stick his head on a pike and plant outside the city. And then I'll let you figure out the rest of this for yourself, but they hung certain parts of him on the city gate that night just to make sure that everybody in that city knew what had happened to their great prophet. What an amazing turn of events. There have been stories, you know, uh, of people defeating dragons and stuff like that. And people believe these things that actually happen. Uh, St. George and the dragon and all the rest of this stuff. And so that's what they were expecting to happen. But now what in the world are we going to do? We've rebelled against the prince bishop thinking that Jan Mathis hears from God and he heard from God and God told him to go do this and he, his guts are still laying out in the, in the field. And everybody went, that went with him, same thing. They're all just torn to shreds. Not a single survivor. What do we do now? Well, it didn't take long for the rumor to start going around the city. He's going to rise on the third day. Hmm. Huh. Well, before the third day, the trumpets sound, and everyone is summoned to the city square. And high above them, on a balcony that can be seen by everyone in the darkness, light shines forth, and out walks Jan of Leiden. And he's with Bernard Nipperdalling. And he's with the widow 
of Jan Mathis, who herself was supposed to be quite the stunning lady. And what Jan does, remember, he's an actor. Oh, he knows how to make an entrance. What Jan does is he says it was Jan Mathis's time to die because he was arrogant. Hmm. And God never told him to take those other men with him. He was to go alone. He wasn't to cause their deaths. And so God struck him down. But God is not finished with us and with our city. This is still Zion. This is still the community of Christ. And God revealed to me eight days ago this was going to happen. He calls Bernard, is it Bernard de Berdaling or Roth, Rothman? One of the two Bernards forward, and they verify that Yan of Leiden had told, had had this dream, and he had told him about it. He had seen Mathis killed and, and how he was going to die, the whole nine yards. That's how they put down the rumor that Jan Mathis was going to rise again and, in the process, establish Jan of Leiden as his successor. He's received revelation. He's received visions that are true. And God told him to marry Jan of Mathis's widow. Jan of Leiden's already married. So that's a problem. Um, but now you have new leadership, and it is Jan of Leiden has now taken over. This would have been the perfect time for the bishop to move. But the bishop was not a military guy. And he made no move against the city, even though its leader had just been chopped to pieces uh, rather easily by his own forces. And so now Jan of Leiden is in control. The siege has only been a matter of weeks. It's going to last for another year. It's going to last for another year, more than a year, under Jan of Leiden's leadership. And in a matter of weeks, a jewelry maker is going to show up out of nowhere. Nobody knew who he was. With a prophecy from God that Jan of Leiden is king of Zion in the, in the manner of David. And he is going to be made king of the Anabaptists in Munster. And it's only going to get weirder from there. But we are out of time. So, like I said, if you want to read all this ahead of time, The Taylor King is available from Amazon on Kindle. And in softback, if you want to be ahead, uh, you can read up on it. But uh, if not, then be back. Not next week because I'll be in Florida next week. But uh, the week after that, uh, be back, and we will continue the story, hopefully wrap it up in one more session. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to think back, Lord, and learn. And we just ask that you would help us to learn from situations like this, as strange as they may seem. They keep happening, and we need to know why they keep happening. Help us to understand. Be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.